Today's episode is brought to you by College Backer, the easiest way to save for college with the help of family and friends. Go to www.collegebacker.com motherbirth to get signed up for a college savings plan for your child that your loved ones can donate directly to. College Backer will add $10 to your initial contribution exclusively for motherbirth listeners. Yes, friendships make us feel good. Um, but crucially, they also help us build our sense of confidence and self-esteem because in a friend, you have a role model. Welcome to Mother Birth. We help women awaken the confidence that is already within. This is a space for vivid, inspiring birth stories, meaningful advice from guest experts, and honest exploration of what it means to become a mother. everyone. Welcome to Mother Birth Today. Laura and I are here and we're interviewing a guest named Megan Connolly. And Megan Connolly is one of the founders of Well-Made Mama, which is an organization that really helps mothers thrive in their, in their transitions and in the roles that they um, are a big part of. And Megan has a background in psychology, which was a really big part of, of how she came to the work that she does now. And I'll let her tell you a little bit more about herself and what brought her to this work. So Megan, would you introduce yourself? Sure. So my name is Megan Connolly. I'm uh, one of the co-founders of Well-Made Mama, along with Sabrina Scalfari. And um, yes, my background is in psychology. Um, <clears throat> I have a master's in um, applied positive psychology, as well as a master's in um, industrial psychology and a, sort of a long background of um, research and practice in the, in the science of human behavior. And um, a lot of my graduate study corresponded with the experience of becoming a mother myself. And as a result of many of those experiences, uh, Well-Made Mama was born because um, Sabrina and myself saw a real need for being able to apply the science of human behavior to the transition into motherhood for modern mothers um, and really making sure that um, women who were transitioning into motherhood at the same time that we were, you know, had access to a lot of the great science and research that is out there that can um, raise awareness around a mother's emotional health and motherhood. Yeah, that is so important. And it's a really big part of what we're passionate about too here at Motherbirth. How does that actually look? What, what format does Well-Made Mama deliver that content? Like how, how does that relationship happen? Right. So, you know, our, our main premise is raising awareness um, among mothers around a lot of the great science that's out there at the moment um, that speaks to their transition as mothers um, outside of their bodies, really instead in their minds. And, you know, so much of the transition into motherhood happens in one's mind. Um, and so much of the information that we're given in preparation for motherhood is really about our bodies. Um, it's about the transitions our bodies are going through, the birth process itself, but the transition our minds are going through. And then crucially, how to create adaptive coping mechanisms um, mm -hmm. for this transition. There really isn't a lot of language around um, as far as, as we could experience. So we created a website. Um, initially to um, create some, some blogs, some content, um, you know, reviewing a lot of the, the science that's out there. Some of the blog content looks at the neuroscience of, of motherhood. So, you know, what goes on in, in the transition in your brain um, as you prepare for pregnancy and birth. Um, some of it looks at, you know, sort of the transition 
just emotionally around some of the things that can change in our identities, our relationships, and, you know, techniques crucially on how to cope with all of that change in an adaptive and healthy way. So the website introduces um, this content, and we're also moving into in-person sessions and talks um, with mothers where we can really interact with mothers um, on a personal level and crucially get the mothers that we're speaking with um, to connect together as a group. Because what we found is one of the most important um, aspects of a healthy transition into motherhood is community. It's connecting Mm -hmm. with other mothers. And there's some very solid science behind that. And so um, we really feel that creating a community around the sharing of this science is really essential because it's role modeling what we find to be as, you know, the most, um, the number one job one, <laughs> as it were, of a healthy transition to motherhood. And that's creating a community for the mother herself. Yeah, That's so interesting. And I know we've heard this from women consistently as they share their stories that there's so much, like you're saying, there's so much energy and so much preparation for even just birth. We talk about that even just as far as like a physical process. We prepare a lot for the physical process of birth, but maybe not as much for the actual like emotional um, or intellectual experience and then not as much for parenting. That's kind of what we hear from women. So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, it just makes so much sense in what you're saying that on top of all of that, are we really actually even thinking maybe that 10 feet above and looking at like what is actually happening to my, to my mind and like to what, what am I transitioning into in my new role and that, how that affects every relationship that you have or what, you know, whatever endeavors that is, if you could give like a little, something you found in this kind of exploration of the the intellect that's changing and the mind that's changing in a new mother, like what, what would be kind of your like five second science teaching right. on that? Right. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, as, as the thinking around well-made mama was starting, you know, an awful lot of science, um, exciting science was coming out, um, in the neuroscientific realm, trying to, you know, looking at what some of the physical changes that take place in the woman's brain are as she approaches pregnancy. Um, you know, this is something that we really weren't able to, you know, understand much about 15, 20 years ago because we didn't have access um, to some of the imaging and scanning technology that neuroscience researchers do now. And, you know, one of the more interesting findings that has come out um, is around oxytocin receptors. And, um, you know, a lot of uh, neuroscientific researchers have um, looked at this um, research in, in in the animal transition um, into pregnancy and in animal subjects. But um, the idea is that as your um, baby grows, the receptors for oxytocin, which is the, the bonding neurochemical, um, really develop as well. And so um, the the mother becomes much more receptive to these to these. Um, neurochemicals that go through her mind. And at the same time, in another part of the brain, um, the, the dopamine receptors are becoming much more rich and they are connected to the area where the oxytocin is also flowing. So neurochemically speaking, um, bonding becomes much more rewarding. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a really profound idea because we are inundated at the moment with, messages on what it means to be a good parent. Um, you know, and that definition can change weekly, um, you know, depending on sort of the resources that you're looking at. But what's interesting about the neuroscience of pregnancy is that 
if there's one thing to get right, and if there's one thing um, that you know the body knows to get right, if it's going to be investing resources and actually you know transitioning the mother's brain, it's probably really important. And so neuroscience can kind of point us to what job one of motherhood might really be from an evolutionary perspective, and that might just be bonding. It might be cuddling with your baby. It might it might be you know increasing the strength of bonding with your your friends and your family, things like that. So. Um, mm-hmm. You know, looking at the, the neuroscience of it is interesting, but also looking at the way that one's identity changes as we prepare for motherhood. Um, you know, I, I've anecdotally I've, I've heard, and you know, when when I was going through the experience with my own friends, a similar thread of experience was a new mother is preparing to um, move into a new phase of her life, and at the same time. She might feel that many of her friends um, who aren't moving into parenthood at the same rate with her are pulling back because they don't feel that she's as interested in the same things that she used to be interested in. Um, Her family members might be changing as well as they prepare for their changing family structure. You know, the introduction of a baby can make mean everybody moves up a level (laughs) in the family world structure, and that can introduce change. And so you know, a woman's identity is shifting so quickly. She's probably wondering if she's going to be going back to work, um, if she's going to be a stay-at-home mother, if, you know, she's going to be many of the parenting choices she's going to commit to. You know, all of these pieces of identity are shifting quickly. And the magazines we're reading, um, for the most part, again, are talking about, or the books we're reading or the classes we're going to are, you know, we're, we're rich in information about our bodies, but these shifts, these transitions aren't really discussed, but they're happening. So in a nutshell, <laughs> you know, there's, there's the physical change of the brain. There's also sort of the emotional and identity change that women are going through. And yeah. then there's another level and that's the society that we, um, existed at the moment in 2018, where, you know, there's an awful lot of mixed messages around what it means to be a good mother. Um, you know, the definition of that seems to be changing so quickly. And, you know, as human beings, we tend to rely on the resource, the wisdom of our own mothers and our own grandmothers. Um, but, you know, as society changes so quickly and we have, you know, access to new information and, and new resources and we have access to new opportunities where we might be traveling farther away from our families than ever before, um, you know, mm-hmm. to move to new opportunities, bigger jobs in the big city. We tend not to have the resource of that wisdom, that ancestral wisdom, um, where we might, you know, rely on a, a more extended group of kin in our village of origin that we do as well. So, you know, mothers can also be feeling more isolated than they ever have. And, yeah, and I, you know, you have this, yes, this confluence of <laughs> great change, yeah. you know, potentially more isolation and you've got a new mom who's trying to figure it all out. Yeah. And I think on the societal level, you know, that's something that we see so much. And, you know, in, in my experience, you know, just working with women and having friends that are mothers and in my own personal experience, I think that a lot of times, you know, I think I, I do personally think that, you know, we're on the tail end of a generation or two that really kind of had to really figure out what it looked like to be modern women and, and a lot of shifting and compromising and reorientation was happening in those generations. And so I think a lot of us today who are, you know, in our, you know, somewhere between 20 and 40 and, you know, raising children or getting ready to have children really feel this disconnect from the previous generation. You talk about, you know, how, 
traditionally, we would get a lot of the wisdom around our, our parenting choices and our parenting practices from our mothers and our grandmothers. I actually know very, very few women nowadays who are my peers who, who would say like, yes, I would really turn to and rely on my mother or my grandmother for this sort of ancestral wisdom, for parenting advice, for, you know, that modeling that is so powerful. But I think a lot of us feel like we don't, we don't have that. And I think it's twofold. I think that, again, like I said, I think that there was a lot that happened generationally there that means that, you know, we, we are, it's really natural for us to be disconnected from that wisdom because it wasn't necessarily the, the modus operandi (laughs) that, you know, that, that was being prioritized. But also I think that we have become so insular and so affected by that insular approach to, you know, to dealing with life that we often don't realize that we can get support and wisdom from, from the people around us. You know, I think I also Mm -hmm. see in the conversations that I have and in my own life that it's really common for people to think like, you know, no, my, my mom doesn't have anything to teach me or, you know, my aunt or my grandmother or whoever, but really there is, there is wisdom and support there that we are just, we're just not used to accessing. Mm. Right. I mean, you have to think about where we are in our evolution. Um, and, you know, up until, well, maybe a couple hundred years ago, I mean, we just lived in, in smaller communities, typically. Yeah. Um, a very small percentage of the human population lived in an urban environment, you know, only a hundred years ago. And today, you know, we're looking at projections of maybe 70 or 80 percent of the world living in an urban environment, um, mm. you know, sometime by the end of the century. So, it's a big demographic shift and, um, you know, being able to create those communities, um, those communities that would have been considered a birthright for a mother, you know, really only a hundred years ago. That's a great way of putting um, it. Is, is again, it's a new skill, um, that isn't really discussed. You know, how do you create that community of affinity, that community of sisterhood that would have physically been there to usher in your baby? Um, you know, birth was a, a, a community endeavor historically. And it's Um, not just the, the urban piece. It's also the displacement piece. I don't know what the percentages are, but you know, so many people don't live near their families of origin, even if they feel really connected to their families and feel like those are support networks that they would really trust and rely on. You know, most, Mm. most people that I know don't live near their mothers and their sisters and their cousins, you know? Mm. Right. Because it's progress. I mean, you know, there's a sort of a, a story that's told that, you know, it's, 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 a, it can be a very healthy thing to do to have a great opportunity someplace else. Um, mm-hmm. and to, you know, move elsewhere to, to follow up that opportunity. Um, and you know, it, it, it doesn't really occur to a new mother that, you know, being alone in quotation marks, you know, at the most vulnerable phase of her life is going to be an issue until right. it is. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, that is very true. I personally am the poster child for that. I mean, I really just, it did not occur to me. And, you know, I am lucky to have a mother who is a, is a great source of, you know, wisdom and, and knowledge and support for me. Um, despite, you know, despite our, 
are typical, <laughs> typical issues. But, you know, I live very far from my mother. And while, yes, she travels to see me from time to time, it's, you know, it's very, very different than, than you know, siblings of mine who, who live proximally and have a very, very different experience of raising their children. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's just it. You know, you, you, everyone can be forgiven, forgiven for having that darling little illusion prior to the baby arriving that the baby's just going to be there and, you know, and they're going to just get on with their life as normal. Um, Mm -hmm. It's very hard to predict just how much support is going to be necessary. Um, You know, raising an almost, you know, helpless human being whose childhood lasts far longer than any other species we share a planet with Mm -hmm. almost, um, Mm -hmm. is requires such an investment of resources that historically we've always done it together as a group. Um, it's, it's very atypical, um, to assume that all of these responsibilities should just fall on, you know, a a smaller family unit. Yeah. Yes. So, um, and agreed, you know, I mean, our, our own experiences, Sabrina and my, mine own, uh, my own basically very similar to yours. So, you know, we, we moved away from our families of origin, um, to London, to central London for, you know, new jobs in, in a big city. And, um, we, we met in a, <laughs> a baby care class, um, and we had a very similar experience in the fact that we were about to become mothers thousands of miles away from our own mothers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a unique experience. And, you know, we both have wonderful mothers who also hopped on airplanes and came over to be there for us the minute the babies were, you know, had arrived. Um, but, you know, eventually they had to go home. <laughs> right. And uh, to be really, we, we drew on the friendship of one another um, to really act as kind of surrogates in that, you know, more isolating experience, but it caused us both to become quite reflective of the fact that our story was probably not unique. In fact, we were probably very typical, Mm -hmm. um, of, you know, young mothers, you know, traveling far for opportunity and adventure. And then again, finding themselves, um, in a position where they need the support of community more than ever. And so, you know, how do we adapt in that situation? Hmm. I know we've, we've talked about this so much, I think, you know, and I think this is, you know, just such a current realization and a current identification of that in so many different roles, you know, we've, you know, one of the things we hear a lot from women is like, if you don't have that direct community, then like, what is your support in early motherhood then? Is it that you find new mothers, that you have a doula, that you have postpartum lying in support? Like what, in what ways can you rally what maybe isn't? just like, like, like it's not part of your, yeah, it's not built in. It's not like you can't reach to your left and to your right. And I think that that is such a hard thing. Like, like you have all shared, like it's just something that didn't occur to you until after you needed it. And so Mm. I'm always just like kind of engaged with like, how do we, how do we tell women then? Like, how do we get the message to those women? Like, is it providing more services? Is it raising awareness? Like, yeah. Mm. how how do we get to a place where we're not chasing back the problem? And, you know, I think a lot of it comes from this exact thing. Like, you know, people like you and Sabrina be not, not just being inspired, but empowered by that, your experience and identification of that. And then wanting to obviously spread that, that knowledge and encouragement to other people. But I, I do, I want, I wonder if it's, is it, you know, is it should be part of the teaching you're receiving from your provider or, you know, how many times, 
you know, as I'm learning, I'm, I'm in school to be a nurse midwife, um, for those listening for the mm. first time, I don't, know if, I don't know if Megan, if you knew that. And so I think Ooh. about that sometimes and every once in a while, you know, depending on who my, I'm following or shadowing, you know, they'll ask things like, you know, what does your support system look like? Like, how are you planning yeah. on, but not, but not always. And I understand, you know, some of it's time and some of it's, you know, which appointment do you ask that in? But I do think for a lot, we, we ask a lot of questions about like what they're doing in their pregnancy at the moment, what their plans mm-hmm. are for birth. And, you know, I think breastfeeding support's getting better. Some postpartum depression support's getting better, but you know, I've, I've never like written in my record. This is the support system this person has. Yeah. Like it's not an assessment that we're performing. You know what I mean? Well, and I think that even really conscientious providers are still just by nature of the scope of, you know, their work and, and their attention is, is really focused on like, you know, that postpartum support, like what, you know, who's going to, who's going to help you, you know, until you're, you know, you go back to work or, you know, what's, what are you going to do to actually really, um, address something like postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety. And I think that what's really, really interesting and so critical is that like the need is obviously so acute and so crucial in those early weeks and months, but then like the communal piece of it, like is, is a permanent, it needs to be a permanent thing. And I think that, you know, like you can only, you can only have a postpartum, you know, most people can, lots of people can't even afford a postpartum doula and, and the people that can, you know, there's still limitations on, on how much you can access support like that. And, you know, I, for me, like in my own personal journey, you know, we had our oldest son kind of ahead of our peer group before others started having children. And, and I regret would be the wrong word to use, but I, I feel kind of cautionary about that with women. Like if you are wanting to have children, of course, you know, you have to consider your own factors in, in your life in terms of timing and stability and all these other things. But like one of those things that we consider should be our sort of our communal matching. Like, are there other people in my community that are also in this stage of life of, of raising young children or, or planning to do that soon? Because man, it is, it is, so much harder to start a new community from scratch. If you realize suddenly that, Oh, none of my close friends have children. And so to get this support in this community and this sense of camaraderie that I need, I'm going to have to like start a whole new friend group. And that's really intimidating Mm -hmm. and overwhelming to people. Well, and that's the thing as well, you know, making friends, <laughs> again, is, you know, not something this, this isn't covered in school. Um, no. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's an essential survival skill, though. Yeah. I mean, we all need a tribe and a mother, you know, um, needs a tribe acutely. Um, so again, you sort of falling into this, this skill gap that is, is not really met, um, in current baby preparation. Although interestingly, I think that one of the the best side effects of taking a baby preparation class, you know, where you you can go and and learn how to (laughs) change a diaper is meeting other mothers who are about to also have a baby. I mean, that is such a rich source of potential community there. 100%. Yeah, that's, it is one of the best best ways to, to connect, especially if you are realizing that your, you know, your current friend group, your current community doesn't provide that, that kind of shared experience. 
and you need to generate that and relatively quickly, (laughs) you know, a, a new mom group or a baby prep class or, you know, a birth prep class or whatever, like this is, this is the perfect synchronicity. You know, you are going to be meeting at least a handful of women who are distinctly in the same stage of life as you. Right. And you cling to those women. I mean, you can cling to those women because, you know, they, they get it as well. And, um, you know, just sort of an interesting anecdote, you know, when I, um, when Sabrina and I and, um, and others met, you know, at the same time, it was, my own experience in, in meeting new mothers at that time was interesting because I, you know, I sort of went through the pregnancy, you know, reading my baby care books and visiting little shops and, and, you know, decorating the nursery and, um, not really thinking about the state of my kind of social network. (laughs) Um, because again, I had that illusion that things were just going to go on as they always had. And when I met a new mother who was, expecting at the same time as me, there was this sort of visceral recognition that was going on or my brain was telling me, you need this. Like mm-hmm. you really need this. And that was interesting as well. Um, because, you know, I'm not typically, you know, we, we, sometimes we click with people, sometimes we don't, but that visceral recognition of my, my mind that said, you know, there's something so essential to the community of mothering. And, you know, on some ancient level, my mind knew that, um, Mm. and was nudging me towards those conversations. I think that, you know, it was only my own personal experience to share there, but I found it interesting. Yeah. I think that, I think the need is cellular and that biologically, you know, evolutionarily, we really, we really know deep down that this is how, like you've been talking about, this is how we've always done this. Like, as, as inherent as the act of conception or, you know, the physiology of pregnancy and birth is as inherent as those things are like community and, and doing the raising of children in community is, is as inherent, you know, it's, it's something we're not designed, we're not designed to do it alone. No. And we're not designed to do much of anything alone. I mean, the, the brain does not like to be in isolation. Um, you know, from a survival perspective, the the importance of being in the presence of others was so essential that, you know, our minds cry out, um, you know, with the the pang of loneliness, um, even if everything else in our lives is going okay, you know, being in isolation is very, very stressful for humans. Um, and yes, you know, when we're talking about the upbringing of an additional generation, then, you know, it adds a whole nother layer to it. So, you know, it, it, introduces this idea that we are slowly moving away from the ancestral model of parenting. And the farther we move away, um, you know, we introduce more and more potential, uh, you know, kind of risk for that sense of of isolation. But really, you know, all it needs is a little bit of awareness. All we need to do is add this to any new mother's list of to-dos, which is don't forget your community. Um, And, you know, it's just something, it's a new habit to get into. It's a habit to get into striking up a conversation, you know, with a a new mom at a class or, you know, once the children have arrived, you know, continuing that interest in building community. Because as as children grow, you know, phases grow and, you know, your your children move into different phases, but keeping those communities alive and vibrant is important. Um, So that skill of striking up a new conversation with, you know, a woman that you meet somewhere is one that needs to be kept, um, strong. Yeah, definitely. 
So we're going to take a moment to hear a little bit more from this week's sponsor. Now we're going to take a quick break to share a little more with you guys about this week's sponsor. I think that most of us are in the habit of just ignoring this elephant in the room, the the growing cost of college education in America, and it's really easy to feel like it's just too overwhelming, so we just ignore it altogether. And every once in a while, we panic as we think about this ticking clock and how it's probably already too late to even start saving Enter College Backer, which is a totally new way to save for college. It's kind of like GoFundMe, but for your kid's college. So you can get your family and friends involved and accelerate your college savings plan. So how does it actually work? I'm going to share a small clip from our conversation with the COO of College Backer, Abby Chow, where she shares how a 529 plan works and why it's a no-brainer. To hear the full conversation, you can check out episode 68, which aired on July 30th. So um, just as a quick introduction to start, a 529 plan is basically uh, a tax-advantaged investment account specifically for higher education or um, for K-12 private tuition as well. And so the way it works is similar to a Roth IRA. So um, you put in post-tax money and then the growth on the account is completely tax-free and withdrawals are also completely tax-free as long as they are for higher education or K-12 tuition. It's never too late to get started saving. You can head over to www.collegebacker.com slash motherbirth for more information and to get signed up. They're offering a $10 match on your initial contribution exclusively for motherbirth listeners. Now let's get back to our super fascinating conversation with Megan. Okay, so we're going to get back into this conversation with Megan. Megan, I wanted to ask you, you were talking about these neurochemical changes that happen during pregnancy and specifically the oxytocin receptors. And I, we kind of got onto other things, but I wanted to ask you at the, that time, are, are those chemical changes permanent or is that kind of a, a temporary state that's specific to pregnancy and postpartum? So that's a really good question. Um, I don't actually think we have the science yet to be able to state um, you know, we're not, we haven't tracked women 30 years Mm -hmm. in. Um, and again, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I don't want to (laughs) speak outside the boundaries of of the science that I have reviewed. Um, but you know, we, what we do know is that there's an awful lot of, um, uh, neurochemical change or, um, neuroplasticity that happens in those first few months after the baby is born. Um, so the brain is literally rewiring in preparation to sustain this life. And, you know, um, when we talk about neuroplasticity, I mean, the brain is constantly evolving and changing to support what it's doing in the moment. So, you know, talking just about that, that postpartum year, as it were, um, you know, oxytocin comes not just from well, oxytocin can come from a number of, of sources, but one of the um, more rich sources of it in the postpartum experience is um, breastfeeding. Mm. So there's, you know, definitely um, a link between breastfeeding and the amount of oxytocin that can flow through a mother. Mm. But also, it comes from just simple touch, um, from having, you know, a close conversation with somebody that you care about. And, you know, all of these, new motherhood is rich and ripe with these experiences. 
Um, so we arrive at new motherhood sort of very primed for these experiences. Yeah. We're primed to find these experiences extra rewarding. And so at least in those first few years, um, you know, we're definitely very primed for, for those experiences. Yeah. I think it's such a vulnerable stage too that, you know, our, our sort of awareness of our emotional, the depth of our emotional need is, is really heightened. And I, I have found that, you know, even friends that I have had for years that maybe were more emotionally reserved or, you know, a little more prone to isolating themselves that they, that something kind of shifted when they had young children. And having said that, new mothers also do really tend to, I have experienced that they do tend to isolate themselves because they just don't know how to ask for what they need. They don't know how to reach out. Um, but there's really this, like when you, when you kind of break through with a person who's in, even in that state of isolation, like they are just hungry for connection, like the hungriest they ever Mm. have been. And I'm, I find, I have found that to be really profound and powerful in the ability to connect. And I think that this message that you're sharing is not just for, you know, people who are pregnant or who are new mothers, but it's really a reminder to all of us that, you know, the, the community is, is this very, you know, integral integrated thing. And so as, you know, as people who are in our communities who are, already have children, you know, we have to also be the other side of this for, for new mothers. And, you know, I, I, you know, you always have to kind of gauge where people are at and and what their needs are and, and, you know, what level of, of openness they are, are willing to, you know, to facilitate, but really like being, being the person, you know, I try to be the person when, when friends of mine have children, like I'm the person that, (laughs) Like I'm going to, I'm going to bring you lactation cookies, whether you want them or not. I mean, and if you don't want me to come in, I'll leave them on the door, but like you're getting them, you know, and just kind of just modeling. I think, I think that because we have a couple generations of, of being really disconnected from these ancestral communal ways of being and of, and of mothering and of familying, you know, we kind of have to like be really intentional about modeling what that community looks like for people because they really don't get it. And, you know, I think about that in my life in general, you know, we have a really open door policy in our home and we're always telling people like, you can come over whenever you want. (laughs) And I think people think that we're joking until, until they really realize because we've said it a hundred times and we've modeled that this is actually what we mean. They actually get like, Oh, I can actually come over anytime, you know? Mm. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that, again, we're out of practice in terms of being able to ask for help. Yeah. You know, being able to ask for help is, is difficult um, because it implies a vulnerability. And, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, a, a, an older model community, you know, women would show up uninvited. Yeah. Which <laughs> we have a lot of issues with nowadays. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Right. We, you know, we've because built we these have, boundaries that we think portray our self-reliance. Mm. I think absolutely, and I think that's where that energy comes from. Even in new mothers, even if you know, it's like how many. I mean, I'm sure all three of us have talked with someone who's having a child, and, and in ways of not trying to scare them or discourage them, just saying like, it's really difficult, and I just want you to know I'm going to be here for you, and you know, like Melissa's situation, I'm going to bring you the lactation cookies, or I'm going to I'm going to be here, and and but people want to portray that they are okay on their own, yeah, because that is what is valued. Totally. Like our ability to be self sufficient and successful is what 
is valued in our culture. Mm. And you really have to, I feel like it's so, in so many ways, it's flipping that upside down and saying the value that you can find in this, this transition, this transition to motherhood is how many people you can invite in to help you. Mm. And we just Mm -hmm. don't have that as a value. And we had a guest on who is, um, her culture is she's, she's from the United States and then she had a baby in Guatemala and in Guatemalan culture, you know, the, the family can be very overwhelming. They're all up in your business all the time. But then she said when she had a baby, she was never alone. Yeah. And when she said mm-hmm. that, I mean, I've listened back to that episode and it impacted me so much because I think even, you know, for myself or other people, like, oh, I just want people in my house. I don't want this, that. And you know, it's like, you, you're almost planning to be alone. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, when I get home mm-hmm. from the hospital, I don't want anyone to come over. I don't want there to be too many people around the baby. I don't, and which I understand again, like Lisa said, maybe you don't want me to come in the house, but like, we were, we're, we're planning to show how well we can do it on our own and we should really be planning to, to increase our vulnerability, you know, and yeah. invite more people mm-hmm. in. It's just such a, it's like when we're talking about it in this conversation, it sounds like, of course, of that's course. what you do, but <laughs> yeah. I just don't know. I just don't know people who in do practice. That. We just don't do it. And, and the other thing that, um, that our guest on that episode said was that it, in, in that Guatemalan setting, that culture, it would be insane for someone to think that like a mother should be alone with a newborn for, you know, 10 plus hours a day. Like that's insane. Why would you do that? And that just comes back to what you're saying, Megan. Like it was, it, it would not historically, traditionally, you know, biologically have been considered normal or healthy or okay for a a mother to be alone with a baby for the majority of the day. Like that's just not, it's just not going to work. And that's what we do now. Mm -hmm. It's what we do now. And, you know, the corollary of all that isolation is an inability to rest and recuperate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, really what a community can offer to a mother at any stage, you know, new motherhood or, you know, moving right on the way through it is the ability to rest and recuperate. Um, and, you know, postpartum, you have physical needs for recuperation. Um, but, you know, as children, you know, become older, so do their, their, their needs and, you know, you always have a need to rest. And so, you know, friends can assist with that. A community can assist with that, but without that mothers aren't regenerating. Um, you know, and that's definitely something to keep in mind as well mm-hmm. around health and health outcomes. Yeah. yeah. That's huge. It's, you know, (laughs) we, this is a theme that's been coming up on the show a little bit lately, but, you know, I think that people even use the word postpartum. So in this theme of self-reliance and independence and, you know, being okay on our own and, and recovering quickly. And, you know, even if you just think about what people, how people are expected to bounce back physically after birth and, you know, going back to work and all these different things, we tend to like refer to the postpartum period as this really immediate, short time after birth. And, and, you know, obviously on, on many levels that is true, but I also think that it's, it can be really valuable to kind of open up our, our understanding of that. And, you know, in a joking way, I say like, I'm nine years postpartum. I have have a son who's turning nine tomorrow and I'm nine years postpartum with him because (laughs) God damn it. It is, I am (laughs) still very postpartum with him in some ways. And I just, I just think that you know, yeah. even though that's facetious, it's what what's at the heart of that, and what I do really resonate with is that motherhood changes us, and you don't you don't have this like oh it's really really hard and the changes you know 
really significant in these initial weeks or months. And then all of a sudden, you know, everything goes back to normal and my life looks how it did before and my identity looks like it did before and my needs look like they did before. It's just not true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I think it's a really important point that you touch on sort of when does postpartum end, you know, and, and, and who gets to decide right. when it ends. Um, and, you know, Sabrina and I talk about this topic um, a lot on our site. We kind of call them the borderlands of motherhood and they keep popping up. So, you know, you sort of master one phase and then you move into the next phase because your child is developing in a totally different direction. And so there's a whole new set of skills you have to learn and a whole new set of relationships you have to um, make. And we're constantly in these borderlands, these, these periods of change and, you know, recognizing that you are in that period of change and recognizing that in those borderlands, you know, there's maybe a heightened need for support is a wonderful coping mechanism. Um, but you know, you need to give yourself permission to accept that you're in a continuous state Mm -hmm. of change. (laughs) Yeah, that is so very true. I saw someone share on Instagram, you know, had, they had a little newborn baby and share something along the lines of like, you know, these, these early days where, where, you know, we're learning so much, like we'll get the hang of it, you know, we'll get there. And it just really reminded me of how like, yes, you'll figure these things out, (laughs) but then there's going to be a whole new set of things to figure out. And that is the theme of motherhood. There is no, there is no, you know, arrival point. There's no destination. There's there's, there's rarely even a plateau where we kind of coast for a while. You know, it's like you, you just figure out how to, you know, how to get your child to, you know, drop a feeding at night. And then, you know, then it's something else you have to figure out. Um, you know, it's, and, and that is, can be really overwhelming, can feel really discouraging. It can feel like this uphill battle, or if we embrace it, and if we have the support structures to, to really enable that embracing, then we can actually accept that this is, this is the profoundly and, and really, really connected, like foundational part of, of motherhood that there's a lot of beauty in. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and one of the experiences of all this transition, when we're going through transition, you know, it can feel uncomfortable. Um, cognitively speaking, it's uncomfortable because the brain loves pattern. It loves to stick with a predictable pattern. And when our environments change up and when our, um, situations change up, the brain has to, uh, commit resources, um, to, you know, adapting to those, to those new situations. And when the brain has to commit resources to anything, it involves an energy shift and the brain kind of goes, Oh, okay. <laughs> this is yeah, hard. Well, the brain wants to um, conserve calories. That's one way that I've heard it that I think is, is really, really a good way to think about yeah, it. Because it's responsible for keeping us alive, mm-hmm. you know? Um, mm-hmm. And right, it's got a job to do. And, you know, it, it isn't going to waste calories um, unnecessarily. So when you're asking it to shift its focus of attention, when you're asking it to learn a new skill nonstop, constant, mm-hmm. this constant adjustment, um, yeah, it, it can feel like it's wearing you down. And again, that constant sense of adjustment and change you know, that might be a given, but when we think about how to cope with that, we need to think about what the buffers might mm. be. 
So what can we do to buffer this constant sense of transition and this constant sense of change? And, you know, again, community pops up as job one. Your friends, they can make you laugh. (laughs) You know, I mean, you can each share a story about, you know, an awkward moment that you had in this period of transition. And there's a shared recognition. There can be, you know, just a sense of understanding and connection that can really buffer um, some of the toll that this this constant transition can take. That is very true. And I also think that I just love the idea. Oh, go ahead, Laura. I also just love the idea of, you know, a coping mechanism being community in the sense of Mm -hmm. feeling like first, you know, I mean, again, listening to women, you just have all these moments where you're like, that makes so much sense. You know, early, early on had someone share about really difficult, um, postpartum psychosis um, journey. And part of it was that all the coping mechanisms she had had as pre-motherhood are not implementable when you have a baby. You know, she would isolate, she would take time off work, never get out of bed. And those are not coping options that are available to most mothers. You know, it's a big, basically disconnect from your child or your family or, and so, you know, she, you know, she shared, you know, it was really important facing next pregnancy to say like, these are coping mechanisms that I've learned that, that are implementable in motherhood, yeah. like that are implementable in my life. Like you're saying like, these things that can help with that. Cause I think that's such a great way of describing it. It's just a constant transition that doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be chaos. Like transition and chaos are not the same things, but that, but that constant evolution without coping can feel that way. It can feel like you have no, you're not actually like participating in and the changes in the day-to-day things. But I love the idea of having community being the source of coping. Like you said, laughing, storytelling, five-minute breaks, you know, run to the store together, whatever that looks like that can alleviate some of that loneliness and the the attempt to cope alone. Yeah, and I I think so many of us nowadays, because we live in such an information-rich age and our access to information is so so tangible and so easy. I think that a lot of us turn to information for support or comfort instead of our communities. And that's something that's really big in in the work that I do with women is really helping them shift their perspective and realize like information will not soothe your anxiety. Community can, community totally can. Like an afternoon with a good friend that has another child is, it can be absolutely restorative to your nervous system, you know? And I also think that having friends that it's, it's so powerful to meet that mom in that baby class, who's going to have a baby born, you know, within three months of yours, because there's so much camaraderie and shared experience there, but also having mothers who are, you know, a couple years ahead of you, a few years ahead of you. I mean, in the moments where I feel the most like, oh crap, this is like going really badly. I might be raising a sociopath, you know, what, what are we going to do in those moments? The most grounding resetting, like recalibrating healing thing I can do is have a conversation with a mother that has a 12 year old, you know, and, and she can just say Mm. like, oh my gosh, this is normal. You know, maybe she shares an experience of hers that's similar. Maybe she shares an experience of hers that actually completely shifts my experience. Maybe she doesn't share anything like that at all. She just says like, it's going to be okay. And I can look at her and I can see, not that Mm -hmm. your life is perfect, not that you've arrived because there is no arrival point, but like, oh my gosh, we're going to get through this. That's so powerful. Yeah. And, you know, some of the research that I've reviewed on, you know, the 
instrumentality of friendships um, in a woman's transition really do speak about the self-esteem component um, that friendships introduce. So yes, friendships make us feel good. Um, but crucially, they also help us build our sense of confidence and self-esteem because in a friend, you have a role Mm. model, you know, even if it's the friend that's just passing you the book that she just finished, that just, she just said, this was really helpful. Or like in your example, somebody saying, you know, this too shall pass. Um, it's helping us build, um, a model about ourselves in our head as, as competent, which is a huge source of our well-being. You know, we need to be seen as competent by ourselves first and foremost. Yeah. Um, and yeah, friendships offer that. It's not just it's not just the joy. It's also that sense of confidence and self-esteem that they can yeah. lend to us. And I can't tell you how many times it is that a friend has said to me, like, "You're doing such a good job of being a mother." It's like it's like the universe energetically knows what's going on because mm-hmm. that person always says that on a day where I am like, "I am effing this up." so badly that it is like, it is, I mean, we should just scrap it and start over like that. It always comes at that moment. And there's just something so powerful about that because there's no other source that that, that that encouragement and that comfort can come from that would have that impact. There just isn't. Right. You know, because you you value their opinion. Um, number one. Yeah. That's yeah. really, really yeah. powerful. It's, it's, a, it's a huge benefit. And I think it's, again, it's often overlooked. You know, um, you think of a fun night out with friends as just something that's going to make you joyful, but it's also going to improve your definition of who you mm. are as a mother. Um, and that's just, you know, it's a huge boost. Yeah, it really is. So in thinking about, you know, we've, we've kind of been talking about how important community is, what these benefits are of really sharing this stage of life with people who you know, who really show up for you and you show up for them, how, you know, for, for someone who maybe doesn't feel like they have this built-in community and that it's going to be a bit of a, of an uphill battle to, to create that, what are some tips that you have for, for really seeking and finding community that's going to, to be a really, really good fit for you? Yeah. I mean, so it begins with trying to find a place where mothers naturally congregate. Um, you know, I think, as we said, prior to the baby being born, you know, if you have access to a baby preparation class, you know, just remembering that the, the access to the relationships you might make would be every bit as important as, you know, the mechanics of baby care you might be learning. And then, you know, when the baby has arrived, thinking about places that parents tend to go, there's, you know, new parents groups, new mothers groups, there's playgrounds, there's lessons, there's different places where women can sit for a little while and strike up a conversation. So, you know, just paying attention to those um, settings and telling yourself that, you know, you might have an appointment in your week um, at some point after the delivery, you know, when you've been cleared and all the rest of it to, to begin exercise. So, you know, you're sort of committing to this sense of, okay, I'm, you know, I might try to work out a little bit. Um, and so committing to a social date as well, you know, is not a vanity. It's an investment in your well-being. So sort of saying, okay, I am going to try to go to the playground and talk to a mother or two, or I am going to try to maybe go to a new baby class and strike up a conversation with a mom or two is every bit as crucial as trying to take that walk around the block, um, you know, or go to the grocery store and buy some nourishing food. And so it's 
committing to investing in your community in a conscious way, in the same way you would commit to investing in the health of your mm. body, um, is a, is, is a good, you know, sort of tip for the mm. beginning of it. And then, you know, of course, I mean, all of us have, uh, differing levels of comfort in terms of putting ourselves out there and, totally. you know, <laughs> yep. making friends. Um, it, it, it's comes more easily to some of us than others. And, again, it's remembering that it might feel uncomfortable, but it's an investment in yourself. It's an investment in your community. Um, and you know, one of the more powerful kind of anecdotes, um, that I tell myself is that the women I'm talking to maybe not always, but maybe need my friendship as much as I need theirs you know, and reminding yourself of that, that you're not an island, that the women you're seeking to make, you know, create community with are maybe potentially also seeking the same thing from you and that they probably think you're pretty cool. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's, it definitely takes courage. And I think that even if you consider yourself to be a social person, an outgoing person, that there's, there's a level of, of vulnerability that, that belies what Lara said, which is that we are, we so value and promote, you know, independence and self-reliance. It's like, it's, it's hard to say, even if we have no problem striking up a conversation, it's hard then to say like, Hey, I'm really like, I'd really love to hang out again. Can we get our babies together and go to the park? You know? And, and that feels like really vulnerable for some, for some crazy reason. And for me, you know, a lot of our listeners know that my family and I have been traveling um, a lot recently. We've been traveling semi full time and it has been really hard for me, but also really good for me to be in environments where like, I'm going to be in this place for a few weeks and my children need connection and I need connection. And if mm-hmm. I don't be bold in, in making that happen, like we're going to spend six weeks in this town, just hanging out at our house and probably being kind of miserable. Mm. So it's not really an option. So I'm going to have to like, you know, we're, we're having a conversation and you over here. <laughs> I mean, there are moments where it's like, if you feel crazy, but it's like, Oh, I heard you're going to the river tomorrow. Where are you going to the river? Where can, can we come to the river <laughs> with you? Like you just kind of have to, <laughs> you know, be a little bit bold and, 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 you know, that, that feels risky, but it's, it's like anything that has, you know, like that level of risk is mirrors the level of potential, you know? Yeah. Yes, exactly. You know, and they are, you know, one thing that everyone has in common is a story. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, kind of a good starting point again, you know, when you're, you're meeting these individuals and you're trying to work up to that ask of, Hey, can we keep hanging out? Um, you know, in between there are, are commonalities, you know, I mean, you all, you're, you're mothers to start with. And so, you know, a great story, you know, icebreaker is how did it all start? You know, how old are your kids? Um, you know, how did you come to be in this community? How, you know, so whatever commonality you have, but striking up that commonality is a really ripe um, area for starting a great conversation totally. to help you, you know, warm up and get to that point of, this was fun. Can we do it again? (laughs) Yeah. And I think when you, when you approach it with that sense of commonality, with this belief that we, we have commonalities, even if I don't know what they are yet, then you are more quick to, to find those commonalities and, and they're always there, 
you know, it's amazing how, how different people can be and yet still find the things that are shared enough that they can really enjoy time and space together. I love that. So, um, Megan, how can, how can people, as we're wrapping up, how can people find you and well-made mama? How can they participate in the work that you are doing and, and benefit from, you know, the, the way you guys are kind of taking research and, and synthesizing it for the modern woman who really wants to, to incorporate these more, you know, traditional or ancestral beliefs about how we mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So you can check us out on wellmademama.com. Um, you can read the blog posts, you can sign up for our newsletter. Um, and as I said, we're, you know, introducing, um, some new aspects to the site, um, in a, you know, sort of throughout the rest of this year. So we're going to be having a few, um, gathering sessions and meetups where we're trying to create some physical community. And we're also, um, going to be encouraging women to come to a part of our site where they can experiment with some of the, um, activities and and learnings that we've discussed in our blogs and really share about how they're working for them. So, you know, we just encourage you to come to the site and engage with us um, and, you know, learn as much as you can and let us know if it's working for you. You know, again, this is really all about starting a conversation and raising awareness around, um, you know, not just the importance of uh, emotional health and motherhood, but crucially, how do we keep it Mm -hmm. going? You know, what do we do to cope in an adaptive and healthy way? And, you know, what's working? Um, Because that's really that's part of, that's what science is. It it never ends. Um, we're continuously learning more about ourselves and, you know, the science of motherhood is really just beginning. Um, so yeah, we encourage you to come to the site, check in, read our content, engage, and, um, you know, keep going. Are you on Instagram or Facebook, anything like that? We are indeed. Um, yeah. So you can check all that out. Um, on our site as well. Well, we will share links to your site and, and social accounts and all of that in the show notes on the blog. We're really excited to share this conversation because I think it's just so, so important and so powerful for, for women to just be reminded of the importance of community and how impactful it can be and how much we need to prioritize that, not just in that initial postpartum period, but really in our entire postpartum period. Um, And you guys can also connect with us on social media. If you don't already, we are on Instagram at motherbirth.co and we've got all kinds of really amazing content that we share over there and a lot of great interaction with our community members. Um, You can also find our website at motherbirth.co and we have um, a couple of different things that we offer there for women, including a course for women who've experienced pregnancy loss and want to trust their bodies again. You can also check out information about Lara's upcoming groups around birth trauma and, and really integrating those experiences in a group setting. So thank you guys for listening today. And thank you so much, Megan, for joining us and sharing your wisdom with our listeners. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Mother Birth. And a special thanks to our editors, sponsors, and guests for this week's show. As always, this show is created by Lauren Melissa and is intended as general information that does not constitute or substitute medical advice of any kind. You should always consult with your primary care provider with respect to your medical care if you are pregnant, planning on becoming pregnant, or in the postpartum period. In this episode, we may use affiliate links to products and services that we know and trust. 
These are products we have personal experience with and believe that they will benefit our community. When you use these links, Mother Birth receives a small commission. What you pay for the product or service doesn't change at all. It's the same price. If we share something that includes a discount code, we may still receive an affiliate commission without affecting the discount offered to you. Thank you for supporting our show. 